last verses of Acts 17, 31 to 34, uh, the portion that's uh, set before us for today, Acts 17 and verse 31. God has given proof of this to all men by raising Christ from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. So as Luke records it then, the last five words of Paul to the Areopagus were about the Lord Jesus Christ, that God was raising him from the dead. And we're told that that was the last straw for some of the Greeks on the council listening to him. They were not gullible men. They may have been men who lived in a pre-scientific age. But it was certainly not a pre-common sense age. No one comes back from the dead. You die and you stay dead. There can be no resurrection except in fairy tales. And that's what they believed. And that's what many people in Aberystwyth believe still. But Paul climaxed his message to them by referring to this as a historical fact, Jesus rising from the dead. And while some of them sneered at it, God honored the word of Paul. It wasn't all just lying there, those words, in the dust of Mars Hill. There were others who wanted to hear more, and a few of the people listening to him became believers. A man called Dionysius, who was actually a member of the couple of dozen aristocratic philosophers and leaders of the Watch Committee of Athens, he was one of them, and he believed Paul. And an important woman called Damaris and others, whose names we do not have. So, for Paul, as for Peter, an essential part of the message to the unbelieving world, was a statement of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We've looked at Peter's preaching at Pentecost, and this is the climax of his preaching. And we've looked at Paul's preaching to the pagan world in Greece, and that is his preaching. There was very little difference between them. One could refer to Old Testament scriptures because it was uh, the common parlance of the people in Jerusalem, and Paul doesn't do that, but he says the same truths as Peter. So, here is the climax, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let's look at that this morning then. I want to say, first of all, something you've probably not considered, that the resurrection is not unique to the New Testament. In the Old Testament, there are a number of references, a number of incidents. There's one in the life of Elijah, as he uh, raises the daughter of the widow of Zarephath, from the dead, we're told, he cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this boy's life return to him. The Lord heard Elijah's cry, and the boy's life returned to him, and he lived. And then you have a similar resurrection then with Elisha, the successor of Elijah, when the Shunammite's son was raised after uh, Elisha had interceded, cried to God that his life should be restored to him. So the believers of the Old Testament were told by these examples 
that death is not the terminus of our existence. It's not ultimate reality. That the power of the creator is greater than the power of death. He has power to resurrect people who died. And we find that that was uh, also the great hope of the patriarch Job when he says, For I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand in the latter day upon the earth, and though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God, whom I shall see for myself, and mine eyes shall behold, and not another, though my reins be consumed within me. So he had the hope then of resurrection in his body, seeing God. There is an interesting uh, 21st century Jewish scholar, a historian, a diplomat, a man called Pinchus Lapide, died a few years ago now. And he did well in taking seriously the New Testament accounts of the resurrection. He did what most people never do. He looked at them, the latter chapters, and the whole life that precedes that, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. And uh, this is what he says. These are his actual words. I accept the resurrection of Easter Sunday, not as an invention of the community of disciples, but as an historical fact. So he's read these accounts and that they are too rooted in history for any major revisions or deceptions or some conspiracy in so short a time to have been involved in the record. He believes that Jesus physically rose from the dead. And he's got then Old Testament scriptures. Old Testament for him is the word of God. And he's got the example of Elisha and Elijah and the young men who were raised and Job's great hope. He's written about the resurrection in uh, his book which came out in 2002, The Resurrection of Jesus. You can get it on Amazon. But strangely, he hasn't become a Christian. He regards Christ as a sort of role model to prepare the world for the coming of the future Jewish Messiah. And so such a Messiah would have to follow the preacher of the Sermon on the Mount and the one who raised the dead and the one who spoke and the winds obeyed him and the waves obeyed him. As they say, he's a hard actor to follow, isn't he? Can you imagine such a Messiah coming then? A Jewish Messiah and referring back to Jesus and starting to teach them and saying to them, you ain't heard nothing yet. I'm saying to you that what was unique about the Lord Jesus wasn't just the great signs he did, but uh, he had this extraordinary character. This wonderful personality in its perfection, in its love, in its kindness, in its accessibility to people, in its tenderness that women trusted him and brought their children to him, and his teaching, his parables, the Sermon on the Mount, the whole conglomeration. You know, magicians on TV do extraordinary things, so we have no idea how, how they do them, but when they speak with their weak voices, then they haven't got the moral authority and holiness and love that this man had through his life. Secondly, I want to ask you then, um, what do we mean by the resurrection of Christ? 
Now, that's not as simple a question as may at first sight appear, because you'll find scarcely anywhere in all the branches of the professing church, uh, even in its most apostate branches, you will find anyone who denies the resurrection in outright terms, in absolute terms. They claim that the Lord Jesus rose on the third day, and it lies so firmly in the Bible and in the church's creeds that no, no, no one will dare to say that it's an outright lie, that it's a falsification, that it's a result of some um, elaborate conspiracy. What can happen and what does happen is that men claim to believe it and then they explain the doctrine away. Now, the resurrection doesn't mean the survival of the soul of the Lord Jesus. It doesn't mean the survival of his memory. It doesn't mean the survival of his teaching. It doesn't mean the survival of his influence or the Jesus idea. It does not mean that Jesus is alive in the sense that, as it said, men have a religious encounter with him. It means none of those things. No doubt all those things are true, but those things are are not what Paul meant when he faced the Areopagus and he came to this climax and he said God raised him from the dead. What, what, What Paul was telling them and what the whole New Testament asserts is that there was a phenomenal occurrence in the most literal of understandings. It was a physical event. But the resurrection of Jesus Christ wasn't referring to a revival of the soul of our Lord or the revival of the ideals that Jesus stood for or the religious potential of his influence then and in the years to come. It is speaking of the physical body of Christ. And it is saying that something happened to that body that means it was reanimated, that it came to life again that the heart started beating, that blood began to course through his veins, that he began to breathe, that there was electrical activity in his brain, that he had blood pressure, that he opened one eye and then he opened another eye, and that he got up and he removed the napkin from his head, and he took off the shroud and he folded them neatly, and he walked out of the tomb. And that that body still exists And it still functions today. So we must take the whole idea of resurrection out of the realm of ideas and doctrines. And we must place it firmly where it belongs in the world of physical reality. In the world of phenomenal reality. Not in the world of theology. Not in the world of philosophy. If you go to the New Testament and you ask the authors of the Gospels and the letters and uh, the book of Revelation, who all saw the risen Christ, what exactly did you see then? And they will say to you, we saw a body. They saw Christ in a certain physical form. And it was visible. And it was tangible. If it stood on scales, you could have weighed it. If a camera had been invented, then you could have taken a photograph of it. The body had hands and feet, it had eyes and ears and nose, it was able to speak, it was able to eat and swallow and digest food and defecate, 
It was able to think with its brain. It was capable of locomotion. It was capable of uh, making bread and, and baking it, of catching fish and killing and gutting and cooking it. It was capable of thinking with its brain. It was capable of walking miles along the road from Jerusalem to Emmaus. It didn't float. It didn't hover. It was a body which Jesus said had flesh and and bones. It was a body which bore the marks of recent crucifixion. Thomas, as you heard in the reading, was read in your hearing, Thomas was invited by the Lord and to set to see the marks of the nails and put his hand into the appalling wound in the side of the Lord. And if we go to John's vision on Patmos, then he saw in the midst of the throne a lamb, and it was a lamb as it had been slain. And what these men saw and what these men heard and what these men touched was the body of Jesus Christ, the risen Lord, had a body. He had a visible, tangible body that you could hug and kiss. It had its own human scent. In other words, the whole event, the whole of the Bible's teaching is literalistic. It is physical. It is crass. It is, in the old sense of the word, a carnus doctrine. It is a teaching about the carnality of the Savior's body, his body physically rose. Let me put it otherwise. Uh, There's a place where Jesus Christ now is. He exists in one body, in one location. Now, do we ponder that? It is not that he used to exist uh, ages ago in the way Henry VIII existed and Nelson Mandela existed and Diana, the Princess of Wales, existed, but that he is today alive in his physique. He's still in the body, physically. A man there is, a real man, at the right hand of God. As I am in this body now, located in this place. In other words, we're not arguing that Jesus Christ is in the hearts and and lives of his people. He's not in the memory of the church. He's not in Christian preaching. He's not in Christian art and in Handel. Uh, All those things are true. But Jesus exists objectively and carnally in the world that's out there. We know where he is now. He is in the midst of the throne of God and he's as real as you or me. He is the one who actually is. He is the most vibrant physical reality in all the universe he actually is he's not some disembodied spirit he's not sitting on a cloud he's a resurrected and embodied teacher who teaches us and he's a great high priest who is interceding for us and offering his sacrifice to God for us and he is a lord who rules and works all things together for the good of his people I'm insisting that he has a physical form and he is in a certain place this morning, and there men see him. The spirits of justified men, freed from the sin that used to beset them, they actually look at him. Our loved ones in Christ are looking at him, are with him now. 
And one day the whole ransomed church of God will see him. And from that place he will come back one day, physically and literally, to this cosmos, back to this earth. The Lord Jesus of the resurrection appearances. He is a physical Christ. The Christ at the right hand of God on high is the physical Jehovah Jesus. And then again there is this, that he is a transfigured Christ. The whole teaching is that the physical form of the Lord Jesus has undergone the most radical and marvelous transformation. You, you ponder, you ponder the condition of the entombed body. He was crucified in weakness. He'd been beaten up. He had been blindfolded and hit in the face and asked to prophesy who had smitten him. He'd been whipped and whipped. A crown of thorns had been thrust onto his head. Nails had been driven through his hands and feet and attaching him to a cross and from them he had hung for six, nine hours. And finally a a spear was thrust deep into his side out of which blood and water came from that big wound. And then he was officially pronounced dead. He was taken down from the cross. They used pinchers and they pulled out the nails that had been hammered in and he was tenderly lifted down by Joseph of Arimathea and his servants. That bruised and sunburnt and lacerated and pierced and disfigured and emaciated body. And it was wrapped in grave clothes and it was transported and in that condition of humiliation It was covered in fragrant spices like frankincense and it was laid on a cold slab in a tomb where there was a a stone on a ramp. The wedge was taken away and it rolled down and fitted in its place which protected it from wild animals. And the body was sealed in that cold and dark place. Now it was that body in that tomb a couple of days later that came alive again. It was transfigured by the power of God. Vitality was restored to it. Its impotence was removed. Its helplessness was terminated. Death was dethroned of its power over him. The taste of death vanished from him. The body of Christ was raised, but it was raised then Not as it had been. It was raised in power and glory and splendor. He no longer, he never again will wear a crown of thorns. He was raised as a body, essentially, necessarily, but a new body. A body which came and went in a marvelous way. A body which was able to vanish and appear at will. It was a real body, but it was a new body. Remember the sight of it that Paul was given on the road to Damascus. He saw the risen Christ and what he saw was an object of unspeakable splendor. It was overpoweringly, overwhelmingly majestic. It was blinding. It was intimidating. It was a thing of glory. And you remember John's vision then of the same Jesus on the Isle of Patmos. He describes the Christ that he saw as eyes that were like burning fire. And a voice like the sound of many waters and his countenance, you never saw the like, he said. It was like 
the sun shining in noonday strength. The body had been crucified in weakness. It was raised in splendor. In its committal to the sepulchre, it was a body of vileness. When the stone rolled and fell into place, behind it there was a body of humiliation. But in the resurrection, it became a body of divine glory. And again, it's physical. It is always so physical. The Christ whom the Apostle John saw on Patmos was physical. The Christ who rose was physical. At the right hand of God, there's a real man with a man's transfigured body, with transmuted glory. A body that has been made beautiful by all the aesthetic power of God. All he can do to make his son the most glorious and magnificent object in heaven and earth has been done. Now that is what this teaching is all about. It's not about a soul. It's not about a God. It's not about man's influence living on after his death. It's about a body. It's about the body of Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God. Let me ask you another question then. What does the resurrection mean for us today? Each of us here are individuals. We have our history. We have our personalities. We have our pressures. We're living in the second decade of the 21st century And we are confronted with an overwhelming way of life and attitudes and values that are utterly secular. Our entertainment and our education and our media are all in the hands of people who do not believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. So what are the implications for us of this risen Christ, this empty tomb, this observable and tangible and seen Jesus of Nazareth, what's its message to you and to me? Well, firstly, its message is this. We live in a supernatural universe. You see the great uh, predictability and constancy of the world. You, You can tell what time will be high tide and what time the sun will set and what is the shortest day of the year, and the longest day of the year. And it happens with unfailing regularity. But men refuse to admit that all that regularity is the constantness of the operations of God. That the world and its inhabitants live and move in omnipotence. You know, it's a humbling experience to ponder in the light of the 20th century physics that as our great solar system moves let alone the whole universe just what that means we ourselves as human beings we are simply bundles of atoms and neutrons and electrons and subatomic particles and we're constantly on the move There is such immensity and complexity in all that movement, even in this little building today, in this little congregation. No finite mind is capable of grasping or computing the movement that is here today. And then there is a unique intrusion. There's the finger of God. 
that begins to move, that opens hearts and opens understanding and illuminates and takes away a stony heart and gives a heart of flesh. And God makes known to us in that how God can perforate the process that he can burst in and disturb and stop and disorientate and reverse things because this is his cosmos. It happened in the crossing of the Red Sea, in the fire that fell at Carmel after Elijah prayed. It happened when a shadow was reversed. It happened when the plagues hit Egypt. It happened at the incarnation of the Son of God. That was the greatest of all miracles, when God added to his own divine nature a comprehensive human nature. Two natures in one indivisible person. It happened in all the miracles of Jesus when the winds and waves obeyed him, when he turned great jars of water into jars of wine, when he cleansed the leper, when he raised the dead, when he walked on the Sea of Galilee and rose again on the third day. These were the fourth puttings of the power of our Creator. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And that heavens and the earth and the whole uh, complex of natural law is often personalized and it's called nature but nature can't think and nature can't speak nature can't say to God back off don't interfere it can't do that at his will God interferes at his will he walks on water at his will he gives sight to a man born blind At his will, he opens the heart of Lydia and she gives attention to the gospel. And at his will, at his own chosen time, the heavens will open and the trumpet of the Lord shall sound and time shall be no more. And he will close down the whole vast universe in which we find ourselves and he will cause all its elements to melt in fervent heat. And the whole world which was divinely created and sustained and guided, the whole solar system and the whole cosmos is going to be brought to its close. Its consummation will be an act of God's choosing. Now that is what the resurrection means. We live in a supernatural world. We are open then to the intrusions and the perforations of God. The resurrection says that. Secondly, the resurrection says this. We shall live also. As certainly as there was a tomb for the Son of God, there will be a grave for you and for me. There will be a moment when we will exhale for the last time, when we give up the Spirit. It's a fact of great solemnity, and as we look at the inescapable destiny that we are facing, the most certain fact about the future of everybody here, the youngest to the oldest, then I want to ask you, do you have hope? What lies beyond death? Well, the great consensus of human longing and aspiration says, ah, yes, yes, we, we do have hope. There's life beyond it. But there's another witness that speaks and affirms that. Yes, says the word of God. 
beyond death is indeed life. And it's a special kind of life. What kind of life is it going to be? Will it be an attenuated life? Will it be a vague and ghostly and insubstantial life? And the resurrected Jesus Christ answers our queries. And he says to us, no, because I live, you shall live also. And how did he live? Well, he walked on a road, didn't he? Talking. Talking at length about the Bible. That he cooked and ate fish. That he sat and helped his followers. That he comforted a godly woman then who had followed him, whose heart was broken at his hideous death. He moved among 500 people that went to a hillside in Galilee. The grapevine worked and all those people that we read about in the gospel, believing centurions and thankful lepers and two sisters and a brother from uh, Bethany and his changed half-brothers and sisters, they were all there and he moved among them. And he talked to the one and he talked to the other. He had all the time for them all. He was in no hurry to leave them. And for the rest of their lives, they, at the drop of a heart, they would tell you that they had seen and what it was like to be with the risen living Jesus Christ and so he says you shall live eternally as I live not just immortal souls but bodies raised by the power of God it will be that glorious eternal order which has permanence that ours doesn't have it's that coming great order that we are to experience, not just of men made perfect, but we will share the existence of the risen Lamb. And we will have the redemption of our bodies. And that's tremendous consolation for us, is it not? Our dead are going to be raised. That's the inspirational thing. We stand before these uh, simple elemental words of the great gospel. The gospel was written by an almost illiterate man. This man, John, he might well have been the first member of his family for generations who could actually read and like and write like John Bunyan was the first. John Bunyan's father signed his will with a cross. But John Bunyan wrote The Pilgrim's Progress and three volumes of books. And he was able to read. And John the Apostle could write. He could record what we heard read this morning. He is not here, the messenger from God says. He's not here. He is risen. And that will be true of every grave in Christ. And every tomb in Christ. The earth shall give up the dead that's in it. And the sea shall give up the dead that are in them. And you are dead. You are dead, loved ones. Your dear husband. Your dear parents, they shall rise. And Job says, and in my flesh I shall see God. The body sown in dishonor will be raised in glory. There will be a reconstitution of our personalities. We will become whole men and women, body, soul, and spirit in Christ. There will be a reconstruction of severed relationships with those who lived and died in Christ. We shall stand hand in hand with them and look at Jesus together. Because he's not here. He is risen.
the resurrection of Christ, which Paul preached to the men on Athens, spoke to them of a cosmos that was open to God's activity, to God's intervention, to God's sovereign making bare of his arm. It spoke of immortality and resurrection life. But it speaks of one thing more. And the third thing that resurrection speaks to us about is we are confronted with the most glorious Christ. The Greeks had great philosophers. They had Plato and Socrates and Aristotle. But they were dead and buried. Their dust lay under the Grecian sky. Their great dramatists and writers of sagas like Homer. Their historians and poets. They're all dead and buried. Their architects and sculptors. They breathed their last. They were no longer living. They put up the Acropolis in, in Rome. They're dead. But Paul never forgot the one that he'd met on the road to Damascus. And he told the Areopagus that the Lord Jesus was alive. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Was the words of a madman or they are the words of God? They are the words of a liar or they are the words of God? And he said, because I live, you shall live also. And he said that when we met together on a Sunday and when we heard the word preached, he was there and he was dealing with us and he was moving among us and he was opening our understanding and he was speaking to us. Welcome living Jesus. We're honored to have your presence with us today again. There's nothing more glorious than that. You would hear many things then in your life that are much less familiar to you and are more novel to you and maybe more astounding to you, you'll never hear anything more glorious than the fact that Jesus Christ is risen indeed, that he is alive. He's not a memory. He's not a force. He's not an influence. He's a living person of consummate power. He's the one who upholds all things. He has the whole world in his hands. He brings life to all. He has the keys of death and Hades. And when he opens that trap door in the end, we will fall through it. And none can stop us. Nothing whatsoever. And he is the one that has arranged this gathering, has brought you here and me here to speak of these things. And that's the perplexity we have with this Jewish writer, with Pinchas Lapid that we can't follow his logic. He says, God raised him from the dead. He says, that's it. That the evidence of the New Testament is unanswerable. On the third day he rose again. He says this. Oh, but he's still waiting for another Messiah to come. And we say, well, no. Um, all that the Father gave him to say, he said to us. All the work that God gave him to do, he's done. What John said about him at the beginning of the gospel, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, he showed. What more godlike man have you ever met than Jesus of Nazareth? And all that supports that, the miracles and the marvelous loving integrity and the strength 
No one could point out a lie he had told, or a smutty comment that he made, or a leer, or a suggestive word, or peevishness of self-pity. It was all extraordinary patient and wise and kind and pitying. This man has seen, this world has seen a man as holy as God is holy. This world has seen uh, a man as, as merciful as God is merciful. And he is the risen Son of God. This is our conviction. And then there was the appalling contradiction that he was crucified. He died that death. This Jesus, this perfect, powerful, loving man, was allowed by God, spared not by God, from the death of the cross. And they were just left with the pathetic thought, we thought that he would have been the one who would have redeemed Israel as they walked home on that Sabbath day after the Friday when he was crucified. God abandoned him. And he died that death. So what we thought about him was wrong. We thought and hoped, and all our thoughts and hopes were wrong. And now we're just despairing. Another good man who couldn't beat the system. And then something happens. (laughs) Something happens in this world, in space and time, on this planet. On this planet where a degree of latitude crosses a degree of longitude. In all that blank, black despair, it has to be reviewed because the man who is walking with them and starts to open up the Bible to them, it's Jesus. It's Jesus. It's the one they heard preach the Sermon on the Mount and heal every sick person brought to him. This is the one who spoke to the winds. He's not dead. He was dead. But he's declared now the Son of God with power by the resurrection. So God cancels the great word of crucifixion, blasphemer, criminal, crook, liar, the fake Messiah, the failure, the madman. The resurrection says, this is God's beloved Son in whom he is well pleased. The resurrection says, the Son of God with power. And so how did they respond to it? Well, they, that's what they did. They fell at his feet. They said, my Lord and my God. And that's great theology, that Jesus Christ is Jehovah and God. It's great doctrine, it's great Christology, but that's not the most important thing. It's great religion, it's a great way of life, it's a great lifestyle, it's the true lifestyle that all of us should live. We live under the lordship and divinity of Jesus Christ. We all say, my Lord and my God. So what's our response then to this resurrection? How did the men on Mars Hill, you come to the end of this sermon and you say, how did they respond? Well, they tolerated listening because they all liked new things. And so it was all right to hear this new thing from Paul. But 
when he spoke of the day of judgment and the proof that God had given that all of them who thought they were judges were going to be judged and the proof was that God raised him from the dead and they were angry. There was a division. They'd heard the gospel preached. They'd heard good news of someone bigger than death. It was the most wonderful news anyone could hear and it was preached by an apostle with the Holy Spirit. But they were divided. And there was a threefold division, you will see. Some of them sneered, we're told in verse 32. It was unthinkable that Paul could be right and that Greek philosophy and Greek gods and Greek literature and poetry and architecture and history could all be second to Jesus Christ. It was unthinkable. And for them it was futile to listen any further and read the scriptures or go to church and hear the gospel preached. They today never give the remotest possibility to the fact that Christ lives, that he rose from the dead, that the scriptures are true. It is so self-evidently false. And then others said, we want to hear you again on this Subject, verse 32. They'd heard this amazing message that they'd never hear anything like it again. And it was absolutely true. And he talked about a new relationship with God that was available for them and the possibility of their sins being forgiven and eternal life. And they didn't sneer, but they were indecisive. They were sitting on the fence. They were admiring, but they were uncommitted academic gentlemen. And that's how they stayed. We'll hear you again. We want to hear about this again. A king once said to Paul that. He said, you almost persuade me to be a Christian. But he put him back in his cell and every once in a while he'd bring him and they'd have a debate together. And then thirdly, there were a few men who became followers of Paul and believed. Dionysius, uh, Demarius and a number of others. He left the council. They were too stunned to say, throw him in jail. He'd been faithful and he'd spoken. And then some believed. We say, yes, well, that was an intellectual response. But my argument, through examining Paul's presentation of the Christian message to a pagan world, has simply been this that if what the Apostle Paul said in these 12, 13 verses, intellectually, if it's true, if it's true, then God has a right to your intellect, to your service. From now on, he's Lord of your life. Maybe I've moved you to the point when you believe the message of Paul in Athens, that your mind is convinced. Maybe I've won the battle for your minds. Maybe God has won the battle for your minds. After perhaps many years of thinking and questioning and asking if, if this is right or wrong. And you come to say, well, I, I'm, it is right, isn't it? It is true. This world didn't come about by chance. And it's, there's no hope in materialism. I'm going to believe these things. 
But I still want to feel something. I'm, I'm waiting for that. And I'm saying to you, you have no right to wait for that. The moment you know that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, then get down on your knees. Give God your heart. Give God your life. Become his follower. If today you believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, according to the scriptures, that he's the Christ, he is, he is the Son of God, then bow to him. You don't need to be strangely warmed. You don't need my hand to be placed on your head and me to whisper some prayers in your ears. You don't need special persuasion from me. You don't need the heightened atmosphere. You don't need me to nod to the organist and she plays quietly and I work on through the mic and get you to bow your head and we have some repetitive singing. We don't need any of those things. You simply need from now on to follow Jesus. To follow him. They believed and we're told they followed. They followed Paul. They went and they listened to him and they learned about the implications of the Christian life for their families and for their jobs and for daily living and for the Lord's day. And you need to follow. Follow the truth. Yield to the truth. That's the Christian faith. There's only one great reason, I tell you again and again, only one great reason why we should all be Christians. And that is that it is true. All that Paul said to the people on Mars Hill was true. And that is why Dionysius believed and the woman called Damaris and others. If you believe that Jesus is alive, then you follow him. From now on I'm going to follow Jesus. That's the Christian. I'm going to believe in him. I'm going to worship him. I'm going to say to him, become my Lord and my God. Amen. Let us pray. We ask the Heavenly Father to bless your word to us now and give us that response which only you can give of uh, a new heart and a humble confession of Jesus Christ as God and Savior and our saying, my Lord and my God. And that from now on, we're going to follow thee, not very well, and with lots of hiccups and falls and coldness, and, but we're again and again going to come back to this, that you are our Lord and our God. We ask in Jesus' name, Amen.